Welcome to episode 59 of Mac and Cheese. And Graham, you know, a funny thing happened while you were away. What happened, Mac? The province went orange. The biggest political upset. I couldn't believe it. I stayed up late. I was in Quebec at that point, right? Okay. And I'm, I'm reading your website and watching things. And I'm going, Dai, dai. <laughs> I thought I was being terribly adventuresome and clever. I was predicting an, an NDP minority government by the last week out. Well, I remember right? listening to our last episode yeah. here, and I said I was pretty sure they were going to be official opposition. And you were you were saying a third, a third, a third at that time. At that point, yeah. Yeah. I did revise it upwards a bit. Yeah. But the uh, polls were just pretty consistent, right? <laughs> it it is my uh, funniest thing for me was my I have a lot of very sort of left libby political type relatives down in Toronto, and, he said, and for years and years and years they've always thought, no, you on you know you guys in Alberta, you're you're ruled by those corporate oil toadies, and you're all a bunch of reactionaries. And, yeah. Phew, you know, I spit in your general direction, right? <laughs> <laughs> my cousin's saying she picks up the paper the first thing in the morning. She looks and she says. What the? Yeah. <laughs> and then she wakes up her husband. And they start celebrating, right? Which leads me to what I think is my interesting, the old contrarian thing. Uh, in my day, we called it only Nixon could go to China. Okay. The theory there was a little before that, my time. Yeah, yeah. You know, quite a bit before. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Nixon was the American president who was virulently anti-communist and everything else. I mean, to the right of Ronald Reagan and all those guys. He was the first president to really open up relationships with China, mm-hmm. which at that point was just post-Maoist and, and right. very, very socialist. Starting to open up, but very, yeah. very early. Yeah. But because the American public knew how virulently anti-communist he was, they trusted him. Right. He got away with it, and he started the trade relationship, which has led us to today. Right? So my point being, my cousins and their ilk, who tend to control most of the institutional apparatus across the country— never listened at all to any of the conservative leaders when they defended the oil sands. They just didn't want to hear that the, the oil sands were getting cleaner, that there was some progress and things. They did not want to hear it. Just right? didn't believe it. They didn't believe it. We yeah. don't like you. You're a corporate toady, blah, blah, blah. Yep. Now one of their own, our friend Rachel Notley, will be spreading. She seems to be quite pragmatic. She seems to believe that we can do the oil sands in a sensible environmental kind of way. Right. She will sell that message she will get at least one or two of the pipelines. You know, they've made their public disclosures that they don't like the Northern Gateway, they don't like Keystone, but they do like the uh, Canada East, I believe it's called, or East Project, and they they support the Kinder Morgan doubling of that pipeline. Right? I suspect that she will get it on behalf of Alberta, thereby, you know, <laughs> the irony that it will take a socialist, well, a minor socialist, to, to get this whole thing done. Very interesting, and I, I was... Th- one of the pers- people who was speculating that she might make herself minister of energy just because of you know basically sure. what you're saying, uh, she didn't quite do that. But, but she's, she got some school teacher from the peace country. But she's definitely been public about the pipelines, like you say. Yeah, so. that's been part of their policy. Yeah. The other thing that fascinates me, Mac, is the the uh, the generational difference in perception of what's happened. Mm-hmm. I, my argument is anybody over fifty. Automatically equates the NDP with the older socialist NDPs of the the Dave and Stephen Lewis regime, some of those governments in BC when Bob Ray went into Ontario, and they were very very socialist. They they didn't like capitalism. They believed everything should be controlled by the state. They didn't mind higher taxes. Right. 
And so we have a That's deep, what they knew, right? Yeah, That's we have what, a terrible yeah. deep mistrust of NDP, right? Your generation doesn't even see things in an ideological stripe. You look at the NDP just as if they were Don Iveson or, or Nemshi. Uh, Nemshi. Nemshi down in Calgary. Yeah. Of, you know, it, doesn't, it doesn't occur to people that they might be slightly left of center. They're just progressive people that we voted for. Right. So what I see happening in, a, in the best sense will have sort of pragmatic people that are a little left of center, but there'll be Albertans as well. And Albertans are certainly more rugged individuals. I mean, I think your analysis may be true in broad strokes, yeah. but I keep going back to the NDP didn't necessarily win 53 seats this election. People were voting against the PC party, right? And the NDP had come forward as the alternative, essentially, to the PC party, right? So I don't know. I mean, I get you're saying there's maybe no ideological stripes and that sort of thing, but I wonder how many people voted for the NDP because they're progressive versus how many voted for them just to get the PCs out of power, just because they wanted change, right? Yeah, but I hope that we're smart enough to understand the implications of that change. Um, I mean, how else do you explain such a swing from like five yep. seats to 53, right? Because I, I don't remember, did we talk about this in unaired, but one of my observations has always been that when things start to crumble with any dynasty, Mm-hmm. Be it in hockey, in anything, in politics, there seems to be this phenomenon of nature that when it starts to crack, the whole thing goes really fast. You know, like a little little chip in your windshield, and suddenly it's gone across, and suddenly zoom, zoom, zoom. But there seems to be something. I mean, relatively in the air. relatively fast, considering they were in power for forty four years. It really only took but this time the last around, two for yeah. it to all fall apart, and really the last six months to and every other really provincial election for the last few years. You know, there's, is this the time? Is yeah. this the time? Is this when it's going to happen? Those were those cracks, maybe, and then... Yeah, zoom. Yeah, yeah very <laughs> Dynasty interesting. to dust. Yeah. Dynasty to dust. But as you say, now, what what intrigues me, I was very disappointed in Jim Prentice. I, th- I had thought originally this guy might have the royal jelly. It might have been a terrific premiere. Right? Mm-hmm. But the decisions he made were not those of a really, really good political leader who can who can read three or four steps into the future, right? He didn't understand his implications of having his very soft budget. He didn't understand the fact that if he started flirting with the, the wild rose defectors that people are going to be really turned off by it. He didn't understand that people would be rather upset when you ignore your own elections act and go, you know, that... And then when he got ele- when uh, the night of the election night, when he said, not only am I resigning right now. Which is an obvious thing for the leader to do. I'm going to resign as the leader. Like that was expected, right? Or you could have the option of saying, look, I've really screwed up. I am stepping down, but I will hang around to make sure we have a smooth transition. Yeah. But it was the other thing he did. Yeah, the other thing was unbelievable. Right. Well, I'm not even going to sit in the M- in the legislature. No, sir. Right. I don't care they elected me. I, you know. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm going to go back him, to my corporate buddies in Toronto now. It just made him look like a really sore loser, and it made everything he had said over the last couple of months about how he came back to Alberta because he loved the province and it was in need, it just felt like a lie, like a big sham, right? How you get to know people's true character in times of defeat, not in victory. Yeah. And his was most unimpressive. Absolutely. Understatement of the year. So which <laughs> makes me wonder the whole thing of, of uh, but he sure, I mean, an awful lot of, bright guys wanted to go work with them. They were so excited about it that they were going to pull it out of the fire. And I'm still kind of thinking in my own mind how much of this was just the general rot of being in power too long, 
how much of it was a leader making a few wrong decisions, and they didn't fight a good campaign either. No, he never I mean, he never showed any passion. He never got really mad. You know, the campaign seemed to be miscalculated from the from the beginning, and he didn't do anything to give people another option to consider beside Rachel. I mean, she ran a really great campaign, it needs to be said, right? Her campaign was pretty strong. She had no mishaps during the campaign. We've seen a few no, since. You're right. But right, but during the campaign, it was really straightforward, and, and it seemed like it was hers to lose, certainly by the end. But it was also a campaign that had nothing to do with platforms. It was about personalities. How how much did we really They see talked about the platform way more than the other two parties. I mean, all you heard out of the Wild Roses, we're not going to cut taxes yeah. or raise taxes or whatever, right? And And the Prentice campaign early on had some very planned, scheduled things. But after that, it totally became about we have to fight the NDP, we have to make people afraid that if the NDP get elected, like it wasn't about policies yeah. at all. At least the NDP talked about what they would do with the budget. I guess it wasn't reported at all. People just weren't very interested in policy. It became it became about, you know, oh my God, yeah, Prentice and they're going to lose. we we got to get rid of them. Or the NDP get in, oh my God, we're going to be in trouble. Now, at this time around, Mac, were the polls, were, were the pollsters actually right within oh. a couple of points? Did were yeah. they were there were there polls a week out pointing to a a an NDP majority government? Yeah, they were. Yeah, the polls did very well this time. The okay. pollsters earned their money this election. <laughs> yeah, unlike mm. some of the others. Maybe they learned to stop calling land-based phones to do their polls. <laughs> yeah, no, they were within margins of error, and and even the pollsters that did something on the final weekend, which is pretty risky, uh, were pretty accurate. So what what blows me away, and again, uh, we don't know what goes on elsewhere. Never in a million years did I think they get more than two seats in Calgary at the most, right? For that, how many did they get? That twelve, thirteen, something like that. Like yeah, and every seat in the Edmonton region, which so we knew. Again, we keep forgetting it. Yes, we might be bedrock conservative or whatever, but we're not. No, look we're how we voted province. through the years. We voted for these mayors. This also tells me, on a federal level, this next election is going to be the most fascinating of all. There's going to be a whole pile of swing vote. Yep. We have really interesting scenarios, not unlike what's happened here, except that I think that Harper's a far far better political leader than, than Prentice ever was. Right. Um, it's going to be so interesting. I mean, even here, the ND, or no, sorry, the, uh, the National Post had a really great graphic where they showed like the province over the last number of years, and it goes from like completely blue to progressively a little bit more color, progressively a little, and now obviously pretty orange, right? Yeah. And it just sort of reflects how Alberta's changed, I think, in that time, right? Like you say, we think yeah. we're conservative at heart, but we're really a progressive province, right? And you know you know what bothers me more than anything else in this, this election, these guys being elected? And it's not ideological, it's not, it's the fact that these guys have no experience. That at least most of the time, the elected conservatives. Brian Mason? Okay, yeah. You know, the around. elected ones, obviously, Has anyone they ever run anything besides a NDP constituency association or maybe a couple of schools? I mean, you've got Sarah Hoffman, who's on the school board. You've uh, got Liz Ganley, who's a lawyer. But how many of them have actually run run anything major? Well, maybe that's the problem. That's I know. Maybe it's a good <laughs> thing. Maybe it's a good thing. But yeah. the inexperience just scares me. But that was going to be the case no matter who got elected if it wasn't the PCs, right? I mean, uh, liberals always have a few accountants and a few lawyers. You always get a few people. But when you get up to fifty-three people, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> you know, not all of those people are going to have. Mac, experience. if you'd run, you got in. You would be cabinet minister right now. 
<laughs> I don't know about that. Sure, because they looked at their talent, and they had so few people actually have sort of know their way around the political landscape. Though it is funny. I wonder how many people thought, you know what? If I had put my name you know, forward, tons of people did. I'd yeah. have been elected. <laughs> yeah. So we wish them luck. The other thing I always think is good is you you can't do that much damage in four or five years. Well, maybe right. you can. If they screw up, well, we can just we'll vote a new one in. Golden opportunity, I think, right now for someone say around your age that's very very political and very bright, saying, I'm going to. I'm going to go into one of these parties. Within four or five years, I'll be leader. And maybe I won't get it this time, but within 10 years, I will be the premier. And I think it would be a very good bet. Hmm. Could you be look an at opportunity. what Lahey decided to do. You look at what Decor decided to do. It's an NDP government. They do go down. They all go down sooner or later. And if she racks up $40 billion in debt and the Heritage Fund doesn't go anywhere, we'll be pretty mad at her, too. Yeah. So well, democracy, it's a wonderful thing. Before we leave the topic, you wanted to mention two things quickly, some stuff they've done now that they are elected. Yeah, the first the first big things have come out, haven't they? Yeah. They've reversed that decision to close the Corrections Center down in Calgary. Right. And they... Which would have moved a whole bunch of people to Edmonton. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and then she went and said, okay, we're going to restore all the cuts for education, right? Everything's going to go right back to where it was, which again... Good moves on her part. I mean, they're cons- totally consistent with what she said she was going to do, and she's done them. Yep. Uh, where are they going to find $103 million? You know, this is what always scares me about, about NDPs. They love to spend, spend, spend without too much regard as to where it's coming from. So I, <laughs> I guess <laughs> we'll see how only, that plays out. they yeah. got to bring the budget forward still, right? They're their budget, essentially. But nice to see them take some action right away. Yeah, that was a good thing. Uh, as long as they don't poke the corporate beast too hard because if they do there'll be an exodus yeah with the corporate taxes we'll see where that goes all right what's our next uh next topic here you did a very interesting piece while i was away and i had a good read when i got back you did a, a very very good reasoned argument on this galleria project oh, which it's which back <laughs> the beast refuses to die it's a phoenix it's uh, They're persistent, those folks. Absolutely. And you put together a very good argument, and maybe you can quickly recap it as to why we think the Galleria project, do you, are you saying should not go ahead or should be indefinitely postponed? And if it's indefinitely postponed, isn't that more or less what they're saying, that they'll, they'll stagger this development over 10, 20 years? Okay. So the reason it came back up is last year, council said, we might support this, but you need to lower the risk. So they went away, they tried to lower the risk, they come back. The way they're lowering the risk is saying, we're going to build it over a period of time, and it's actually right. five years. Okay. It's to 2020. And council this week said, okay, we like the phased approach. We'll give you some moral support, essentially, mm-hmm. for this. Uh, I'm saying that I don't support it. I've kind of been on the position of, I don't support this now, but maybe this could be a good thing in the future. But the more that I've thought about it, actually, I just wonder, you know, there's other aspects of it that make me wonder if it's a good idea at all. So some of those things are, if it's going to go ahead, it's going to need provincial or federal funding. The only way you're going to get that is if council goes to bat for you. And if you're Mayor Iveson in council, do you want to spend important political capital with a new NDP government on the Galleria project? Or would you rather do it on some of the other bigger ticket you know, priorities that the city's got, like the city charter, which is more money potentially, or the LRT or ending poverty, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one concern. Another's all around education, right? But it, we're only talking 50, 60, 70 mil. From the city. Yeah. But this is a billion dollar project. They're going to need some funding from the province, the feds to make it happen. Yeah, right? but my only counterpoint to what you're saying is the city throws in 60, 70 mil, which leverages, might leverage the other money. Uh, 
Potentially. Yeah. But then you get into the discussion about is it too competitive with the other billion dollar project that we've got underway right now? Um, well, that's but that's that's capitalism, free enterprise. If they think, but not if, if the city is going to support it and not give any consideration to what's going to happen to the other projects in the CRL, yeah. right? I think part of the problem here is the funding for the gallery is so complex the way they set it up that that is it just private enterprise building the office tower, which is going to sustain the other stuff? Uh, and your whole point about vacancy rates are already starting to creep up. We're putting up three or four more towers. Can we absorb that space? But it's it's. Uh, I think it comes down it's, to this. It's the builders. Usually, it's the builders' risk. It comes down to this. If it was such a good idea to build another office tower and to put a school there, a campus there, why wouldn't they just build it? If we really needed another office tower, why wouldn't the private enterprise market just go and build that tower? But uh, the, but it's not, and that's why they're coming to government to say we have a bit of money here. We'd like you to help us leverage it to build this because it's not good enough to fly on its that's own. That's why you could argue this is social enterprise at its best. If I was going to be a contrarian, okay, I don't really believe this, but sure, you could say that yes, it's a little weird, but it's still private enterprise that wants to do a social project and wants it to trump somehow cover its costs as best as it can from the, the rents from the office tower going to set to to offset the costs of running the theaters and the arts and all the, the beautiful, fancy quality of life stuff. Uh, and the fact it's being proposed by people who are very, very experienced developers. Uh, but then on the other side of that coin, you've got companies that the development company that would sure like to get something on that land because they've been sitting there for 15 years yeah. and they want to build. Station lands never panned yeah. out, right? So. And we all kind of had that secret suspicion, yeah, when things go when things go sideways that these guys come back and just say, well, you know, if you want to keep these theaters going and uh, you want to keep the arts thing going and the university hasn't got any money uh, and we're going to walk away if it doesn't happen. <laughs> it falls it falls to the city though this is the bottom line right i mean there's a lot of rhetoric right now about how there's no risk to the city or it's very limited if at the end of the day it doesn't pan out it's not the city of edmonton that has to pay for it but we know that's not true right i mean we know even looking at things like rexall place you know yep. if northlands had become insolvent and walked away guess who would have put the bill for that it would have been the city of Edmonton. They still might. It's always the city of Edmonton that carries the risk in these giant mega projects, right? So I don't buy the argument that, you know, it's risk-free for the for the city. So there's a couple other considerations I mentioned. I'll just quickly mention okay. them. So one is around education. Uh, it seems to me that, you know, the most interesting stuff in the world is happening because of people of different backgrounds coming together. So why would you separate the arts part of the U of A from the science part? It doesn't seem like a very wise thing to do. Not to mention that the U of A has always, always con consistently said splitting the campus is a bad idea. Having part of the campus downtown is not what they want to do in the long yeah, term. But hang on, Mac. You, so, can, you can argue both ways in those things. You know, and when opportunities present themselves, things happen. You know, uh, some societies are very hidebound by tradition where nothing ever happens. When you get an opportunity like this, I'm sure the universities, you know, the, the opportunity. Well, they, they're going to get a whole beautiful new arts campus. Why not at, build that beautiful deal? new arts campus on the U of A campus? Because there's $50 million coming in that's not coming in from anywhere else, and it's destined towards that location. That project doesn't go ahead if the U of A doesn't go along with this. The U of A holds the power to say, you know what, we're going to support this, but you need to do it on our campus. And you know, the U, U of right? A says, uh, we'll support it because if, it, you know, if, if we can get a whole pile of new buildings for $0.10 cents on the dollar, woohoo, we're in. 
That other, that argument doesn't really fly. It's still provincial money that's going to, I mean. It doesn't matter. It's still everyone guards their own budgets and they look at it I and don't all know. that. I don't buy that. I don't see the win for the U of A here. I don't see it. Don't they get themselves some beautiful new theaters and a beautiful art space? I think if they really wanted that, they could get that on the existing okay. campus. Hey, listen, I'm just being sort of, <laughs> I'm being mildly contrarian because I do basically agree with you. My, my sense in this whole thing is not so much about this one itself. It's just that we got an awful lot of big projects on the go. Yeah. Let's get those built and digested. And this can be You've said you know, this on previous three. episodes, yeah. right? Like, this is my point about the arena being right next door, right? And you yeah. walk around downtown now, there's a lot of empty commercial space, and there's going to be a whole bunch more of it once the city of Edmonton Tower and the Stantec Tower go up. Yeah, Who's going to fill this other tower? So who's going to fill all the existing space? But if it's being built somewhat by private enterprise, someone's taking the risk... It's their loss. I guess it depends on how much public money goes into it. But yeah. And I still uh, feel like council should be making a decision based not just on the merits of this project, but on how it fits into the vision for downtown and for Edmonton, right? I think that was its biggest problem from the outset, that, that the folks behind it, the very powerful group and good philanthropists and everything else, yeah. but just kind of charged in without looking at how do we massage this into council? How do we make it a five-year plan? How do we ingratiate yourselves? I mean, when the Windspear Hall was built, there was no question. Everyone agreed that we needed it. And that itself is a political process. You know, yeah. the, the uh, lining up your ducks, the getting all that done. It just seems somehow that the gallery of people were just a little bullheaded and they're getting an awful lot of pushback now. Yeah, and that's the other part of this whole story that we didn't even talk about, which is the arts organizations who have been pretty quiet for yeah, the most part. Yeah, that was a good point. About the whole project. Privately, I've talked to many of them and they don't, like the project uh, maybe that's because there's still some unknowns or whatever but you know that's a huge if the whole point of building this is to support the arts it's a huge problem that the arts isn't supporting this project you know well you know what's going to happen Mac. it's going to inch ahead over 20 25 years right and the main thing will be we'll get that opera house built which is really the underlying reason for the whole thing Absolutely. is to give the opera a beautiful theater and you can also argue a city of our size and our stature is now ready for an opera hall. So it may all just turn out tickety-boo-mack. Eventually. But that was a good argument. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> all right, Let's well, move over from the arts to sports. Okay, we got a couple minutes left, so the yeah. rush. Let's talk about the rush. Your rush are like the best team they've ever had. They might even go win the championships We're this year. We're in the finals. And now they're talking about leaving. What the heck? We are the in the finals. I know, it's crazy. The, uh, the rush is their 10th season. They made it almost to the end last year. This year, they're in the final against Toronto. Uh, the first game is on June 5th. And, uh, yeah, weird story last week that Bruce Urban, the owner and founder of the Rush, has said, you know, we can't get our attendance up and we might need to leave. And it's true the attendance hasn't been great, and it's been quite bad, actually, compared to some of the other cities in the lacrosse league. Um, we average maybe five to 8,000 people a game. Places like Calgary, Toronto, Colorado get 16-plus. 12 to 16 plus. And so Calgary does real well too. Calgary does quite well. So how come we're we're not demographically or anything? What is there any explanation as to why the, the game has never caught on here? Well, there's no obvious explanation. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, one you of the things I, I note is that a lot of the successful teams are owned by their hockey teams. So, you know, it's the Oilers, but think about the Oilers and the amount of marketing ability that they bring to the table if they were marketing the rush as a product of their own but the rush do a pretty good marketing job i mean their names are out there they do a lot of stuff they uh, yeah so yeah. i mean 
I'm just puzzled that like you guys have never different the, kind of marketing they need to do. I'm not really sure. Is it marketing, or is it just for some reason the game's not as strong here as it is as it, as it is elsewhere? But can't be that different than Calgary. I know, right? That's the, the part area. I always go back to. Yeah. Is like, <laughs> how could it be so different from Calgary? But and I don't think the prices are too unreasonable. Like playoff tickets are thirty bucks each. Uh, Boy, that's pretty cheap, isn't it? Our regular season tickets were four hundred bucks, I think, for however many games that is, like eight games or something, plus one playoff ticket. So, you know, in fact, it's kind of a miracle that Bruce Urban has hung in for ten years because he's never made money. He's always lost money on the team. Uh, he's not a huge business guy. He's got a, a, a string of RV outlets, I think. It. I bet you this has punished his net worth pretty badly. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to see the rush stay, and I hope something gets sorted out. I don't think it was smart of him to go and attack the mayor and, and the city in public, but is what it is, I guess. I mean, I hope, though, he's able to find a solution that's going to be agreeable to him. It sounds like he's been had a few different options and has been the difficult one. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Hey, last but not least, I wanted to, and it's, it's kind of an afterthought, but... As I was walking over here to the library from from my work over at Tech Edmonton on, on, in the uh, Enterprise Square, yep. suddenly kind of you know how sometimes the obvious just dawns on you. Why do we have great stretches of downtown that are still to this day kind of empty of people? And well, it's because so many of those buildings that were built in the seventies and eighties have no storefront. No street, fun, no, no street fun, no connection to the road, no windows even in a lot of cases. Nothing to go look at, nothing right. to drop in. Like it's no no little cute little restaurants. And in, in the more vibrant cities, every block has got that stuff. Yeah, I mean, fortunately, all the new stuff we're building yeah. does take these principles into consideration. And I thought it was interesting while you were away, they held a press conference about downtown construction. And of the, I don't know, 21 projects or whatever that are underway, like a good chunk of them, the majority of them are on former surface parking lots mm-hmm. which is a positive thing right if they're and, uh, and filling they're that all, space they've all now drunk the kool-aid and realized you have to have retail on your ground floors it seems like it and yeah. what i understand too is even the developers them- themselves get that maybe on that ground floor you you don't charge premium premium rates you are willing to forego some income for the bigger thing which is you create something really interesting that people come to and you fill up the rest of your tower because you got a really cool ground floor i mean i hope that's the case we're seeing on 104th street sobeys is still vacant the carbon space is still vacant the icons had vacant you know boxes for quite a long time i think it's full now so there's a risk that we price it out right one thing that really worries me is that we've had all these stories in the business sections. Hey, look at Edmonton. It's doing fine, right? Yeah. Look at all the construction. Everyone forgets there's a year and a half lag between right. when an economy starts to tank and when it – because all this stuff was committed way before. The money was lined up. It's going. They were too far in to back out. Let's see what happens in six months from now. Yeah, I mean, fortunately, it looks like oil prices and those things are on the rebound, and so maybe it won't be as long of a – downturn yeah. as it could have been. But and the good news is we are, you know, these buildings will all get complete. We are going to have a pretty fabulous new downtown of some sort, and uh, hopefully we ride through it really well. But uh, let's not count our chickens before they're hatched. No, I think that's a good message to take away. Good to be back. Glad to have you back. Thanks for listening, everyone. And we have cheese. Cracker Barrel cheese. I thought we'd have a look here today. Good old Cracker Barrel. This is old cheddar. I like it. Now, I I confess to Graham that I occasionally pick this up at Costco because it's just so darn cheap. Mac (laughs) shops at Costco. My God.
I used to shop at Costco when I had three kids. <laughs> and their cheese, you can get beautiful cheeses at Costco for half the price of anywhere else. And they have quite a large cheese section, actually. It's pretty impressive. But this stuff's still pretty corporate. It is pretty corporate. <laughs> it doesn't really have any unique taste. It's or unoffensive. <laughs> when I was in Quebec, we went to a, a beautiful little monastery up in the eastern townships that were famous for their cheeses. And, of course, you couldn't go in and tour them and all that. They don't do that stuff in monasteries. Mm. But, boy, did they have interesting and good cheeses. Like I bet. They had blue cheeses that were very soft and very almost sweet with the blue stuff, like mm-hmm. stuff we don't get here. Yeah. It was very cool. Very neat. Have some more corporate cheddar cheese. All right. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. Check us out at macandcheese.ca.